0: The last two weeks, uh, Chris Henson opened us up, gave us an overview, gave us an initial sermon uh, from Acts chapter 1, an overview. Um, I asked Chris to do so because, uh, one, Chris, if you don't know this, is actually a biblical scholar, um, has a Master of Divinity. Um, uh, He is probably a decade or so younger than I am, but in my journey of marination in seminary, um, we overlapped a bit while we were there, and so was able to uh, learn together. Uh, We took a youth ministry class together, and there is a picture that should not be shown at any time, Chris, of us covered in Crisco uh, and shirtless uh, from a watermelon uh, that we played a game in a pool. And that is the extent of which I'm going to be vulnerable about that with you. And we have made a blood oath, um, haven't we, Chris? Amen. Um, Chris is actually taught um, at a small seminary in Katy, Um, intro uh, to New Testament and also Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles. And so um, there was some strategy in having him come up and teach us as well. As you experienced firsthand, he's a very gifted communicator and teacher of God's Word and has done an amazing job of doing that. And then I got to terrify my friend John Wagner last week um, by inviting him to say, Hey, it's your third sermon ever. Uh, Would you please do that on a Sunday morning covering an entire chapter that's kind of important um, in the history of the Gospel? and of the church, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, we see um, Luke is writing a letter teaching what's happened after Jesus rose from the dead and as he then commissioned his disciples and sent them um, with uh, expectation of the power of his Holy Spirit to see men and women, boys and girls of all nations come to faith and transformation in Jesus Christ. We then see Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father as promised and foretold. The main overarching series point of the books of Acts, if we can grab onto this and beg God for this, it would be that the people God sends are those who have experienced Jesus and are being led by the Holy Spirit. They're people who have experienced the the reality of our sin exposed and brought up against a holy and perfect and powerful God who provided a holy and perfect fully God, fully man Savior a God who has sent his son Jesus to become that which he was not, which is sin, so that those of us who are affected by, are marred by, are spiritually dead because of sin, might be then reconciled to God for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel of God, for the glory of God and good of mankind. But the beautiful thing is is that he sends those who have experienced Jesus but, but the good news is he never sends us alone, but that he gifts us his Holy Spirit. And one thing as we go through the book of Acts, I want us to notice is that the Holy Spirit interacts in many different ways. As he's revealing the holiness and power and glory of God to people in which he is saving and sending. I think we, uh, we like to put God into a very tiny box on how God works. Um, I always joke with my dispensational friends and say that most of you guys are engineers because you like to have... If you don't know what I'm talking about, it is a little funny and kind of true that we slot them in. And I'm not saying that they limit God, but but I'm saying that as we... we We want to create a God in which we can comprehend according to our image rather than understand that we submit to a holy, powerful God in whose image that we are defined by. And so... Acts chapter 1 then ends with them finding a new disciple, Matthias. And then we get to Acts chapter 2, where the party really gets started. The Holy Spirit comes in power like a, a, a rushing wind. There's tongues of flames, they're speaking in various languages, so that people from various tribes, tongues, and nations who belong to the people of Israel hear the gospel and hope message of Jesus Christ and many people that day are saved and then baptized and then we see a wonderful capture and picture of the early congregation of God's people joining together in locations where they live and where they work and where they learn and where they worship growing in their enjoyment and love of God and we see a beautiful picture of how God intended for the expression and response to faith in Jesus, and the fuel and f- being filled by the Holy Spirit is meant to be as we interact with those who are yet to knowing who who yet are yet to know Christ. But when they meet Him, they are empowered by Him for His glory. And so, as we enter into Acts chapter three this morning, I want us to understand the main point overarching this chapter is that God rescues His enemies. To empower them for his mission. And what's going to be interesting for us is actually, Peter and John are speaking to predominantly Jewish people. And so it's interesting that I'm saying his enemies, but. As we see the declaration of this gospel expression through Acts chapter 3, we notice that Peter and John are not using flowery terms, putting um, these men and women in the light of good people who are God-select high people, but rather we're looking at him declaring these people to be those who have behaved in such murderous ways that they're in fact behaving as his enemies. Yet the vision and intent and mission of God, even to those, is one of experience and of proclamation. And so if you're fretting that I'm going to cover 26 verses in the next 30 minutes or so, I want to calm your soul. I want to give you the story of the first 15 verses or so summarized kind of, um, uh, actually first 10 verses summarized, it's going to, I'm going to utilize something called biblical storying. My friend Ralph Clements and I uh, both took that course in seminary. I want to tell you the story of what happens in the first 10 verses. There's a man that Peter and John, as they approach the temple, who was placed outside of the temple by either friends or family members to receive alms, uh, which is like handouts or um, benevolence or pocket change, and, and this guy was carried in, and it says that this is something that was done every day. It's not like the people that we have suspicion of today in our day and age, where they show their sign and ask for money, and then they're placed in, um, you know, and then they, they walk around the corner, get in their Lexus, and drive home. These, this is a man who was crippled, who was unable to work and unable to provide for himself, and so he was brought to this place to do all that he knew how to do, which was beg for the hand of a merciful people. That's all he knew to do was to go and beg for the hand of merciful people. The place they put him to beg is ironically called the Beautiful Gate. It's a gate at the east end of the temple that comes into um, to to the temple where Jewish people would come in to bring their prayers and offerings and worship. And so when Peter and John approached the man, and he asked them for some change, um, it, it's interesting. It says that they tell him, "Look at us." So this this man, not even looking at them, is asking them, "Hey, alms, handouts? Do you have any spare change? Can I have anything?" But they tell them specifically to look at them. The interesting thing is that these men are inviting them, this man, to look at them, yet the ultimate source of his deliverance isn't found in these men. But for the sake of intimacy and transparency, there is a visual connectivity in order to have proclamation of what is true and good. And Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And and, and the Bible says uh, immediately he got feeling and control again of his ankles and of his knees and of his legs. And he bound up, bringing up declaring the greatness of God, worshiping the powerful God who healed him, telling other people about God's ongoing, overflowing, transformational grace. It literally says he was bounding about or leaping around, praising God, and others who saw it were praising God. And so we pick up now in verse 11 of chapter 3. While he clung to Peter and John, so by this point, this guy is like holding on for dear life. He's like, y'all did something, all these other people, they just throw some spare change, but you did something consequential. I'm on your team. It reminds me of the movie and the book. I haven't finished the book yet, but I have watched the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. Anyone ever seen it? If you have, I think it's mostly appropriate. Um, So mom and dad, you might want to find the TV version, but it. It's a wonderful story. There's a man named Edmund Dantes who works on a boat, a fishing boat, and he goes out. He has the love of his life, but he's poor as dirt. His best friend is a really rich guy, um, and this rich guy was so jealous of him. This rich guy had everything he wanted, but he didn't have the girl, and he wanted everything that Edmund had. Edmund was fined to not have much because he had love, and he was being promoted at work, and this man, his best friend, got upset gave him false charges, or charged him with something that he didn't realize he was doing as he delivered something to Napoleon Bonaparte. He was taken to prison, and he was mentored and discipled by a priest who crawled in through the floor of his cell, and I don't want to give up too much for you, but he's trained how to fight, he's trained how to read, he's trained how to conquer the world, and this priest gives him a map to find treasure. And so when Edmond is finally able to break out of prison, he breaks out, he then falls into the water, he then drifts up onto this island, and he stumbles upon a group of pirates. And the group of pirates are about to put one of their own to death, uh, To death, Jacopo. Jacopo had been caught stealing from the loot, and so um, Edmond went over to them and they uh, made up an agreement that, hey, okay, fine. We're going to have you both dagger fight each other to the death. And whichever one of you lives, gets to live and be a part of our crew, and whichever one of you dies is, well, dead. And so Jacopo and Edmond, they fight. Edmond, the priest, was a feisty priest and knew how to fight and so taught him very well. And Edmond took over Jacopo very quickly. But he spared his life. And he asked that they would spare both of their lives. And so, therefore, the lead guy did. And Jacopo told him, probably in a different language, but in English, I am your man. And he latched himself to him. And from that point on, as the story progressed, Jacopo was always a trustworthy companion who always had his back. Gratitude compelled... Commitment. Gratitude compelled commitment. And so this man that we see in Acts 3 was totally bought into these guys who had done such a wonderful thing for him. But they wanted more than that. They wanted him not to be bound to them they wanted them, him to be bound to the god who empowered the miraculous transformation they wanted him to know by whom the power came from and to whom the glory is due And so we pick up. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, amazed, overwhelmed, excited, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. So if you're not sure how I knew it was predominantly um, Jewish, that's how I knew. And then Peter saw, uh, and then he saw the people gathering around, they they saw what had been done, and so he wanted to bring now explanation. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He's surprised that they're surprised. I've talked to many Christians who say when God actually comes through, when he actually provides, when he actually heals, when he actually restores, they are astounded. And I think part of that is because some of us have begged God for an answer or a desire that we have, and it has not happened, either in our timing or according to our will. So when something actually comes through for us, and an addiction is freed from, or a marriage restored, or finances provided, we're shocked. We're shocked. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, his child, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him, Pilate had offered to either give Barabbas or Jesus. He said, you Jewish people choose. And they wanted the murderer, Barabbas. Yet Peter, carried by the Spirit of God, Compelled by the grace and power of God, came declaring the truth of God, the same God that you all are gathering in this place to worship, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified His servant Jesus. How? He glorified Him whom you delivered over. He glorified Him when you denied Him in the presence of Pilate. And he glorified him when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. So far, the case that is building is not a positive one. This isn't a a feel-good sermon. It is a medicinal, consequential, powerful, revealing, and inviting sermon. But you denied... The holy, the set apart one. You denied the righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Paul refers to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. He said, You, you chose a murderer instead of the author of life. You chose that which brings death instead of what gives us life in church. We're guilty of this. We know the one who gives life, yet we choose things that lead to death. Or maybe I'm the only one. I doubt it. I'm not so prideful to think that I'm the only gross sinner in this room. But when you slow down enough to pay attention to what's actually being said, when you slow down enough to pause... And realize that, man, since most of us are not Jewish, we're like, man, those guys, they missed it. Yet, as I said earlier, a lot of us, if God actually comes through, we're surprised, we're shocked, and we're wondering who we need to know, or what church we need to go to, or what pastor we need to listen to, or what book we need to read, or what denomination we need to go to, or which album we need to listen to to get the same benefits. We are created and fallen beings who, if we're not careful, will look to find salvation from other created and fallen things and beings. That's very dangerous. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So you killed him. Oops. God raised him. You thought you would win. You thought your rejection of the Holy One. But this isn't a mockery thing. He's not going into the temple to mock these people. He's going into the temple with a message of liberation. He's going into the temple showing from their historical redemptive context that the same God who called and directed Abraham, who promised and gave and redeemed the moment where Abraham was going to kill his son Isaac. The God who took the betraying, cheating, sniveling, then crippled Jacob and used him and changed his name to Israel, of whom these men are descendants. They blew it. They massively blew it. But God didn't allow their broken sin to have the final say, whom God raised from the dead. We are not a people that just declare the death of Jesus. That's bad news if that's where it stops. We are a people who hope in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power of God implanted, deposited in us to no longer live our lives going after murderers, but rather pursuing and wanting more of the author of life. To this we are witnesses in his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. I mean, think about it. What if it stopped? Like you guys put him to death. Would that guy have been able to get up? Would these Jewish people have had another chance? Would you and I be sitting here? No. We wouldn't. In his name, Jesus, Yeshua. In his name, by faith, In his name, the name, that that meaning is the covering of his entirety. Buying into the person. Has made this man strong. Whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given. Gift. Not been earned. Not been purchased. It's been given. The man his perfect health. Not partial restoration, perfect health in the presence of you all. So the first thing we can see in this passage is number one, the power of miracles display the authority of God's gospel. The power of miracles display the authority of God's gospel. One commentator puts it this way. He says that in Acts, actions often lead to an explanation about what God is doing. Word and deed go together. What saddens me, beginning in my own heart and life and in much of our community, is that while we have been given and entrusted, the unwavering, all-powerful, eternal, ongoing gospel of Jesus Christ, while we have been gifted it and entrusted it, we instead we instead hope in other things. And so what we encourage people toward and I, I'm guilty of this as well is people and stuff and knowledge and things and books and podcasts. When we've been entrusted the very Word of God to proclaim the very person of God for the redemption of those in whom God has predestined. And so these actions and these miracles and this consequential power through this declaration of God's unmeasurable grace provides more opportunity for explanation than merely just proclamation. And I wonder, when was the last time someone looked at us as an individual, as a family, as a church, and got a whiff of something supernatural and curious and countercultural and powerful and transforming, and said, What is going on? So that we have opportunity to bring not merely proclamation, but explanation. I remember going around to houses. Somehow I drew the stick after Harvey for supervision and bringing, bringing stuff rather than doing the mud out stuff. Not sure how I lucked out on that one. I remember talking and hearing stories from you all. You all brought several stories, you all in in, in other churches we partnered with, of people saying, we don't know you. Why are you doing this? As we went into their house that has had eight feet of water cutting out drywall and carpet and yuck and placing it along the street. And they say, why are you doing this? And through our explanation... We're able then to also bring about proclamation. What in our lives is so countercultural, so different that, and I'm not saying just in an off putting way, but in a different way, in a way that whiffs of thoughtfulness and, and change and transformation that maybe we can talk about the greatness of God? What is so unique in our body of believers right now? that is just so overflowing that when people get a whiff or get around us, they're like, they, are, they have a unifying something that, that is different than the other groups I'm a part of. What, what do we have in our midst when we gather in our community group and it's, it's a bunch of niceties and kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're spending more time kind of dodging the confession of sin rather than the, the, the confession and then proclamation of the gospel in return. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other. How are we doing? It doesn't say you, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love yourself. I'm not sure about you, but I'm really good at that one. And no one's like, man, you know what? You uniquely love yourself in a changing way. Who or what helps you do that? And so as I lead out in repentance, I invite you to do the same. Jesus Christ has not saved us to bless ourselves. He hasn't called us just to experience miracles to let us off the hook. He hasn't just granted us His grace so that we can just benefit more and more so that people can look at our new car and say, man, they are blessed. How do I get there? Because when we peddle Jesus as just a provider of meeting all of our felt needs, we cheapen profoundly the gospel of grace. So there's this, there's this tension that we see mounting in Acts that there's actions that lead to explanation. So when you do a random act of kindness and you pay for the guy behind you and all of his groceries at the grocery store, you don't say, hey man, you're welcome, look like you were poor. You don't say stuff like that. You say, hey, God loves you and so do I. And I just felt compelled by the Spirit of God to bless you with some provision, with some stuff, and you may be fine and they may not want it, but explanation goes a long way. There is this place and a time for proclamation, but the power of the gospel through explanation, through the power of miracles, and I don't know about you, when, when God allows me to truly, authentically, selflessly think of someone else, that's a miracle. Anyone else? You can say Amen. When we are afforded the privilege of actually loving someone else as we love ourselves with no strings attached, there's a supernatural, Holy Spirit, gospel informed motivation that brings about powerful transformation that gives grit to our explanation. The number two thing we can see through this throw of scripture is that it is dangerous to pursue the benefits of God at the expense of knowing the person of God. It is dangerous, deceptive, for our souls, for our motives, for ourselves, to solely pursue the benefits of God at the expense of knowing the person of God. And the person of God is three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And unless you know the person, the Son of God, you will never experience the power of the Spirit of God, and you will never have access to the Father God. Many of us cheapen our spiritual journey to wanting the benefits of God when the real prize is the person of God. That's the prize. That's the source of power. That's the place of joy. That's where liberation is found. That's where our hearts and our minds and our souls and our lives of our strength and our might is able to love God. When we see the benefits of God as the blessings and provisions of God, as an invitation from God for more of Him. When we see the provision of God and the blessings of God as an invitation from God for more of Him. He goes on in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Ignorance is actually not just a negatively connotated word, ignorance literally means without knowledge. Or maybe with some knowledge and lacking of understanding. There's there's this absence of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. If you attempt to do something that you've never done before, and you've never been taught how to do, you are behaving ignorantly. As I've been on a journey, I've been looking at the words ignorance and incompetence as neutral words, not just negative words. Now in our culture, it is very bad to be ignorant or incompetent. And so, rather than seeking understanding from people who have a different perspective or knowledge, we instead fight those very people. And so the phenomenon of what's happening on Facebook is a bunch of prideful walls being built around our ignorance of another person's perspective and to pursue an ongoing battle and fight on social media is ignorant and unwise. Maybe you'll have a lost friend of yours from high school messaging you and say, like, hey man, I'm, I'm definitely mainstream secular and I'm, I'm on the left side of things and I'm totally pro-choice, but your rant about abortion makes me want to know about the Christ you serve. And maybe that happens. Maybe God supernaturally uses it. I'm not saying there's ever a place to not proclaim what's true. There's prophetic moments for sure. But I know when it comes to the issue of race. I know my friends who maybe even come off as angry from different backgrounds, races, or socioeconomic upbringings appreciate it when you say, what was it like? What was it like? I don't see it the way you see it, but what was it like? Men, if you want to know how to love your wife well and you want to stop trying to fix everything very quickly all the time, there's a great phrase. What was that? What's that like? It's like a mountain coming out of the sea and crushing you. Right. I don't know what it's gonna say. But what's it like? Relate. He says, hey, out of your ignorance, you acted in ignorance, you acted without a revealed knowledge, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Christ would suffer. That's throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament. That the Messiah of God, the deliverer of God, the rescuer sent from God, would suffer at the hands of God's chosen people. So what do we do in response to that? Verse 19, repent therefore. Here's an invitation. It's not too late. The ship hasn't sailed. The train hasn't left the station. You deserve to not have any second chance, but repent. But think differently. Here is the knowledge. Here is the explanation. Here is the evidence of power by this man walking and leaping and bounding about rejoicing. Here is the proof. Now that you see it, now that you experience it, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said the Lord God will raise up for you a a prophet like me from your brothers you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you he's talking about Jesus hey guys heads up a guy's coming just like you and me he's going to say things that provoke us to worship God more than our religion and our identity listen they didn't they murdered him so he's saying hey here's another chance repent And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That being Jewish, being an Israelite, isn't enough to remain connected to the vine. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, and Samuel was the prophet who brought about The wishes of the people to give them their first human king instead of God as king Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and following. It's a pivotal point in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 8 and on. And those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God is the one who by the gift and power of the death and resurrection of his son, the fulfilling of the prophecies, the power of his grace has brought to you another opportunity to repent and turn and trust and hope and go all in with the person and work of Jesus, whom he lifted up and he's now Working in you to turn every one of you from your wickedness, to invite you to more of God, to restore you to your pre-fallen, created purpose and intent and fellowship with God the Father. The third thing I want us to see in this chapter is this that repentance precedes right relationship. Repentance precedes right relationship. And this isn't just at the beginning of your faith journey, it's all throughout. God is faithful in his pursuit and consistency in his availability and presence with us. We who have been marred by sin, restored in Christ, who still have lingering sin, are still being drawn and driven and limited and stumbling along with a limp until our future restored body is received. Repentance precedes right relationship. He's inviting them to repent. What we see in verses 19 and 20 are three promised results of repentance. And some of us here today, we need to repent. We need to change our thinking. We need to change our direction. We need to change who or what we're putting our hope in. We are needing to forfeit and sacrifice and humble our rights for the good of others. We're called to repent from our thinking. And I'm leading out here and considering others better than myself Repentance isn't a bad thing. The Bible says repentance is a gift. It's a gift. It says the kindness of God leads us to repentance in Romans chapter 2. And I'm begging God today be kind to me, to you, to our neighbors, to our enemies. God, be kind. The first thing that we see in repentance in verse 19 is the first thing that results from repentance is the forgiveness of sins. The release from. The no longer held to account. No longer carrying that debt. When we repent, not from that sin to another one, but when we repent, we change our direction in our mind away from that sin to right belief in Christ and His accomplished work. So we, we change our thinking and our direction from those broken things to the healer there's forgiveness and release from those wrongs. The Spirit through Peter also says that there will be times of refreshing. I don't know about you, but I need times of refreshing. More than just a vacation. More than just a quiet time. I need God. God. And through repentance and through keeping short accounts and by coming to God, we are able to own our sin and be forgiven and accepted and reminded that our acceptability is not by our own doing or not doing. It's it's based on positioning ourselves in the full on abandoned hope of the work of Jesus. But this time of refreshing begins individually and Lord willing, spreads through our households and then through our church communities being refreshed in our neighborhoods, and therefore our culture begins to be revived and refreshed. The revival that we are longing for, we say, so I'll put it this way, the revival that we are needing in our own hearts, in the hearts of our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world, the revival we need begins here in us Where we come humble before God, no longer trying to hide and blame like our father Adam, but rather coming like the second Adam of Jesus, saying, God, even that which is not my fault, God, I come owning my need for you. Rather than pointing out the sin of others, we come begging God on behalf of them that they would see their sin in turn. So we see the forgiveness of sins. We see times of refreshing individually and in our culture. And that the third, we see that he may send the Christ. That our our motivation along reuniting with God through repentance and through rethinking differently and through renewal and refreshing is ultimately that we will come face to face with the risen Christ either at our death or at his second coming. It's a preparation. It's a realignment. It's an expectant hope. Number four and last is this, God is a covenant keeper who is able to turn us away from our wickedness to become a blessing to the nations. You are the sons of the prophets, verse 25, and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In the same way God made covenant with Abraham that through him that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations, not just the Jewish people, but to all peoples, that they would be the scattering of the elect to all nations to proclaim the gospel, to see the harvest of those that God has predestined into community and fellowship with him. The motivation and the heart and the drive behind that is because we have been blessed to be a blessing. And not just to those who are just like us, but around the world. I heard one Australian church planning speaker guy say this years ago. He said, the gospel and the church is like, sorry, I'm I'm butchering the Australian accent. He says, it's like a sneeze. Gross. Have you ever seen a sneeze just at the right angle with light? He says, the gospel sprays and scatters. And so next time you sneeze in your outdoors, let it fly and say, Lord, let the gospel spray forth from me and my family and our church in the same nasty, contagious way that we might be refreshed and see the refreshment of our culture and community. God rescues his enemies to empower them for his mission. If you are here today, which you are, I I love when I say that if you're here today, I'm here today. If you find yourself here today and you don't yet know Jesus, you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, you can right where you are call out to God. Say, God, I admit I have failed. I have sinned. I have rebelled. I enjoy wicked things. I call out for the murderer all the time. But today, Jesus, give me Jesus. And He is kind and willing and able to do that in you to do that for you to show the world who he is and for your good let's pray together